The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Here it is. Sir Francis Haddock of Marlin Spike Hall, the last captain of the ill-fated Unicorn. The ship set sail from Barbados in 1676 on one of the most ruinous voyages in maritime history. The ship never reached destination, attacked by pirates, all hens lost except for one survivor. When Sir Francis was rescued and returned home, he was convinced his name had been cursed. The Unicorn's manifest stated that it was carrying a cargo of rum and tobacco bound for Europe, but... It was long claimed the ship was carrying a secret cargo. Oh. What was the ship carrying, Snow? Historians have tried and failed to discover what happened on that fatal voyage. But Sir Francis's last words, only a true haddock will discover the secret of the unicorn. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, March 8, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. Oh, no, not right wing. Just Right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. 519-661-3600, the number that you can always reach us at, or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Today's show will be discussing a number of things, including at the end of the show, I'll be discussing about, well, let's vote to save ourselves from the voters. <laughs> Diane Francis's suggestion that we should have more direct democracy to save us from all these budget overruns and deficits. What Something just sounds wrong about I this. I think so. We'll have to look at that. And captive consent. Interesting insights on some of our typical government, uh, I would say, services and how people view them. Robert, is that what you're going to be doing there? Yes, with education mm -hmm. being a prime example. And I myself am going to devote the first half of our program to something a little unusual. I'm going to be doing a movie review. I got a chance to watch a movie of something that I didn't think would actually appeal to me at first. I wasn't too sure. But I've been a fan of the Hergé Tintin comic strips since I was in my late teens when I discovered them in my younger sister's uh, I think it was Children's Digest magazine that she mm. used to get and since then I was fortunate enough to get the collection I heard Steven Spielberg did a movie just last year on it and Robert it's magnificent and I want to talk about that not just for for artistic reasons but when I got into the history of this it was just amazing what I found out so what we want to look at today is Tintin, A Brief History of the Politics. He's a European cultural landmark of perhaps a culture fast disappearing, as we've been talking about over the show so many times in the past. If you've never heard of it, Tintin is a comic strip that first appeared in 1929. The work of its creator, Hergé, which was not his real name, by the way, but a pseudonym derived from the French pronunciation of Georges Remy's reversed initials in French. Don't try this in English. It doesn't work. I already did. <laughs> Hergé himself passed away on March 3, 1983, in a Brussels hospital at the age of 75. I actually have about 20 of the 23 or 24 or so published volumes of Tintin's adventures. How many volumes there are depends upon which language you're talking about, whether you include the movie versions or, or, and other collector 
criteria and trivia, some of which we'll touch upon on today's show. But I'm using a number of sources that I was that I've collected over, believe it or not, Robert, 30 years. And some of them are that old, and some are fairly current. Well, I know you're an avid comic book collector. Used to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Tintin's the last collection I have that lasted me selling all the rest. Mm. It's the only one still sitting on my shelf. And I wondered why. Maybe. It's a keeper. Yes, it is. Now, this is from The Economist, December 20th, 2008, not so long ago. Hergé always said the Catholic Boy Scout movement rescued him from a gray childhood in lower-middle-class Brussels. From there, he fell in with a slightly hysterical clutch of hard-right priests and nationalists, one of whom gave him his first job on a small Belgian Catholic newspaper, which fervently supported the monarchy, Belgian Belgian missionaries in the Congo, and Mussolini, and loathed the Bolshevik atheists running Russia and, quote, Judeo-American capitalism. Tintin was born in this unpromising environment, in a weekly children's supplement. It is one of Europe's most startling laws. In 1949, France banned children's books and comic strips from presenting cowardice in a, quote, favorable light, end quote, on pain of up to a year in prison for errant publishers. It was equally forbidden to make laziness or lying seem attractive. The law created an oversight committee to watch for positive depictions of these ills, along with crime, theft, hatred, debauchery, and acts, quote, liable to undermine morality, end quote, among the young. Taken literally, the law suggests that an ideal comic book hero would resemble an overgrown Boy Scout whose adventures involve pluck, fair play, restrained violence, and no sex. So in other words, the exact opposite of what we see today. <laughs> That's right. And they say that is pretty much an accurate description, though, of Tintin, because he was born in that environment, the Belgian boy reporter who enjoyed spectacular success in post-war Europe. I'm also reminded of Canada's own crime comics law that we have on the book yes. still, where it's actually technically illegal to depict a crime in the commission of a crime pictorially. And that's what you're doing in comic books. Now we go back over 30 years ago, and before the passing of Hergé, in fact, from an article that came out of, I'm not, I'm not even sure what the book source was, because it had a photocopy, but it's an article written by a fellow named T.F. Mills from America Discovers Tintin. And he writes, Tintin was not internationally known until after World War II, when Hergé's impeccable style and superb use of color had won him recognition as the leader in French-language comic books. Sales of Tintin books skyrocketed from 58,000 per year before the war to 275,000 per year in 1944. The average annual sales hit the million mark in 1956. That's average annual, right? And by the end of 1978, a total of 55 million books had been sold, of which a tenth were in 26 foreign languages. And by the way, all this was some 30 plus years ago, okay, so by now with accelerated annual sales, etc., I have to imagine these numbers are dwarfed by 2012, especially after Steven Spielberg placed his stamp on the franchise. But he was not the first. But to, uh, <coughs> excuse me, to continue with this article, the ramifications of such fame are impressive. Tintin's adventures have been picked up by hundreds of periodicals around the world, including Children's Digest in the U.S., which is where I discovered it, um, adapted into radio plays, and animated for television. I saw a few of those, but you can't find them anywhere. It's really strange. Two live-action movies were made in the 1960s, one of which has appeared on American TV, as well as two feature-length animated films, which in turn have been published in book form. 
All but three of Tintin's adventures have been translated into English. That might be why I don't have all of them. <laughs> Beyond coping with the rendering of idiomatic expressions, some translators have encountered insurmountable cultural problems. Hergé is particularly amused by the Japanese difficulty with Thompson and Thompson. The Tokyo publisher indicated that in Japan, such a pair of blunderers in positions of public responsibility would have committed Harry Carey long ago. <laughs> <laughs> this wouldn't exist, right? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Hergé completely redrew the Black Island at the instigation of the British publisher, who found the English and Scottish setting not altogether convincing. Hergé sent a colleague across the channel to do some location sketches, and in the process updated the setting from the mid-30s to the mid-60s. Another problem was the land of black gold. The translators felt that children would not understand the allusions to the Irgun in nascent Israel at the end of the British Palestine mandate. In the original version, Tintin is arrested by the British authorities in Haifa and subsequently kidnapped by Jews and then again by Arabs. <laughs> Hergé re-illustrated re and rewrote part of the book, eliminating all references to the British and Jews and putting the story instead in his imaginary emirate of the Kemed. The result was a simplified plot in which he was even more, with, with which he was even more pleased. The delay in publishing this volume forced British readers to wait 10 years for an explanation to the Thompson strange growth of multicolored hair during the lunar adventure, which stemmed from a mishap in the Arabian desert. In 1969, Hergé published a deluxe limited edition, only 500 copies, of Tintin in the land of the Soviets to present to his friends. But he had no desire to see it in general circulation. Popular demand, however, created a market for pirate editions, mostly of low quality and high price, while rare copies of the original occasionally changed hand for several hundred dollars. Since Hergé couldn't suppress the unauthorized versions, he finally consented to reprinting it for commercial distribution. Kind of a lesson there for the Internet, too, isn't it? These things were going on half a you know, century ago. And then the German invasion of Belgium in 1940 forced the closure of the newspaper that published the Tintin Strip. During the occupation, two of his books, Tintin in America and The Black Island, were banned because their covers, not their covers no less, portrayed romanticized American and British scenes that would evoke taboo sentiments in Hitler's empire. But the Nazi censors failed to notice that Tintin's most recent adventure, King Ottokar's Skepter, pitted him against the fascist usurpers who wanted to overthrow the king of peace-loving little Sladavia. Nearly begging notice was the fascist leader's name, Mustler, which was a combination of Mussolini and, his, <laughs> and Hitler. And Hitler yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mussler. Yeah. Now, turning back to The Economist. See, I'm trying to piece all this together in a chronological order here. Now back to The Economist of 2008. We learned that this same period of history, 1940, during that period, Hergé was engaged in, quote, a bitter argument with an old friend, Philip Gerard. In a letter, Gerard demanded Hergé either endorse, quote, the odious propaganda of Le Soir, or make his disagreement with the German occupation known. Saying it was just a job would not do, his friend concluded. By way of reply, Hergé offered a defense of neutrality. I am neither pro-German nor pro-British, he wrote back. As I can do absolutely nothing to hasten the victory of either England or Germany, I watch, I observe, and I chew things over, calmly and without passion, end quote. His aim was to remain a, quote, honest man, Hergé wrote, which did not mean shouting Heil Hitler or volunteering for the Waffen-SS. Some said German occupiers were pillaging Belgium, 
an honest man had to acknowledge that this was not true. There is a link between Hergé, this disappointing man, this is the economist writing, and his creation, de Tintin, who fights against despots so bravely. It lies in the rationalization of impotence, a very European preoccupation. Interesting comment, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. Um, not sure if I agree with it in the context of Hergé, but we'll see. I'll let, let the listener decide. Now, this circumstance may explain the following event. Here again, I'm going back to the report by T.F. Mills 30 years earlier. The newspaper that carried the Daily Tintin strip folded in 1944 with the liberation of Belgium by the Allies. And get this, Hergé was arrested as a German collaborator. He was condemned to silence and his books withdrawn. The charge was without substance, but patriots who had resisted the Nazis were suspicious of anyone who managed to carry on business as usual during the occupation. Hergé had worked for a German licensed newspaper, and he never rocked the boat. But the prosecutors did not want to look ridiculous, and Hergé was quietly released. A, a, a few friends who had remained loyal during his period of ostracism helped Hergé reestablish himself. And reestablish himself, he did. Now, I now turn back to uh, December 20th, 2008 three-page Economist feature on what was then Steven Spielberg's and Peter Jackson's upcoming trilogy of Tintin films using, quote, digital performance capture technology. I see you nodding your head. You know what that is. You, you, you were describing it. Actually, I, I, I watched the movie last night oh, good. in anticipation of your uh, review today, and one of the, my co-workers was talking about th that exact method where they put the actors into suits and uh, their motions are captured by the uh, the cameras and computers. And that would explain the fascinating, fascinating we're, we're realism. Gonna, we're going to be talking about that, but yeah. that's how they do that. Eh? So they put a person Perfect. into a suit that's kind of wired to a computer? Um, well, I think or, that they or have sensors on it. Sensors on, yeah. on the person, well, same thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, the computer picks it up and captures those motions and they translate it into this incredible animation? Is, yes, is that the... apparently so, yes. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I'll tell you, well, we'll talk about that a little later. Apparently, it creates it creates a hybrid um, between animation and live action. That, that reminds me of uh, Max, Max Fleischer's rotoscoping. Uh, I don't know if anybody has seen in a very early Max Fleischer's, oh. like in the thumb to thirties, mm. where they would actually paint over live action and make it look so oh, no realistic. Kidding. What yeah. was that? Yeah, interesting. Mm. Um, and interesting, this is, too, this is fascinating too. Spielberg secured an option to film Tintin shortly before Hergé's death in 1983. Now, assuming that Tintin does end up the subject of a Hollywood blockbuster, and it has now, but this was written before that, many around the world will soon think he is American. Hergé's heirs know Tintin's fame will take on quite different global dimensions in a way that will be hard to control. That will mark a big change. After Hergé's death, his wife Fanny inherited the rights to his work. She remains an overall artist in overall artistic control of the Hergé Studios in Brussels. Day-to-day -day operations are run by her second husband, Nick Rodwell, a British businessman. The studios are known for the ferocity with which they guard the works, scouring the world for abuses of copyright from Hergé's old offices on a smart shopping avenue. Mrs. Rodwell confesses to seeing risks in Hollywood doing Tintin. To her, the charm of Hergé's work is absolutely, quote-unquote, European, more no nuanced than an American comic strip. 
The American style of telling a story threatens that European sensibility, she suggests. American narratives are very dynamic, but more violent and are much more aggressively paced. Hergé wanted the risk to be taken. He died only days before a planned face-to-face meeting with Mr. Spielberg. But he had been briefed on the director's thinking by a trusted assistant, Alan Barron. Barron later wrote that the Spiel, that Spielberg saw Tintin as an Indiana Jones for kids, imagining Jack Nicholson as Captain Haddock. I can't imagine that, can you? No. No, not me, no, no. Such talk did not alarm Hergé. <laughs> Good point. He said, a filmmaker like Mr. Spielberg should be given free reign and told his wife, this Tintin will doubtless be different, but it will be a good Tintin. If only he'd live to see the result, eh, Robert? I think he'd be smiling. I think he would. And uh, it's a real shame we can't bring you the visuals of this, but we'll talk a little bit about that after this quick break. A giant rat of Sumatra! Oh, you thought you could sneak in behind me and catch me with my trousers down, huh? I'd rather you kept your trousers on if it's all the same to you. I know you're here. You're one of them. Sorry? They sent you here to kill me, huh? Look, I don't know who you are. That's how he's planned to bump me off. Murdered in my bed by a baby-faced assassin. Assassin? Look, you've got it all wrong. I was kidnapped by a gang of thugs. Oh, we feel this way. He's turned the whole crew against me. Who? A sour-faced man with a sugary name. He's bought them all off, every last man. Zachary. Nobody takes my ship. You're the captain. Of course I'm the captain. Who else could I be? I've been locked in this room for days with only whiskey to sustain my mortal soul. Well, I assumed it was locked. Well, it's not. We have to get to Bagar ahead of Sakharin. I know. I know. Why? Because he has the third model ship. How do you know? The Sheik collects old ships. And this is the prize of his collection. Blistering blue barnacles! That is the unicorn! Captain, do you see the distortion around the model? Uh, Aye. It means that Ben Salad exhibits it in a bulletproof glass case in his palace. Sakharin is going there to steal it. Yes, he has a secret weapon. The Milanese Nightingale, but that won't be enough to solve the mystery, and that is why Sakharin needs you. That's why he made you his prisoner. There is something he needs you to remember. I don't follow you. I read it in a book. That only a true haddock can discover the secret of the unicorn. I don't remember anything about anything. But you must know about your ancestors. Sir Francis, it's your family legacy. My memory is not what it used to be. But what did it used to be? I've forgotten. A typical conversation between Tintin and Captain Haddock, eh? <laughs> uh, and that's what made that movie, too. That really helped. It there was, was a lot of humor in that movie. A lot of humor. Directed by Steven Spielberg. Screenplay by Stephen Moffat, Edgar Wright. Starring Jamie Bell, Andy Serkis, and Danielle Craig, the main stars. And although, you must understand, the entire movie is an animation. Right, Robert? 
Yes, but don't forget the uh, influence of Peter Jackson uh, yes. as a co-producer, I believe, with mm -hmm. Spielberg and another whose name escapes me. And, of course, Peter Jackson, responsible for The Lord of the Rings, as well uh, Andy Serkis, who played the captain, was on uh, The Lord of the Rings as Gollum. And, that, of course, that role was entirely... Uh, the same uh, kind of thing where he was in a suit that a computer oh, that uh, right? looked at yeah, and, and, and mimicked his performance. Just a couple more things I wanted to get to before we got to our more inside opinions on, on, on the movie itself. This is again from America Discovers Tintin by T.F. Mills, who writes that Hergé's style had become increasingly detailed in its realism, and he was the first to depict real makes of cars, ships, and planes. Children have since become very perceptive and never hesitate to let Hergé know if he has made a mistake in the number of rivets or a train on a train carriage or buttons on a uniform. Attention to detail has sometimes gotten him into trouble. When he depicted the crash of an Indian Airways plane, Tintin in Tibet, company officials were offended because they were proud of their record of no aerial mishaps. Hergé accordingly modified the insignia on the plane for the next printing, which would make that first printing a, a collector's item, <laughs> I'll tell you. <laughs> on the other hand, the Australian airline, Qantas, was flattered, if startled, by the great accuracy with which its aircraft and staff at the Jakarta airport were depicted in Flight 714. The Hergé team is recognized as the leader of what is called the Brussels School of Cartooning, which is characterized by detailed yet clear artwork and high-quality offset color printing that is rarely seen in American comics. As many as four shades of each color may appear in a single panel, and Hergé plays skillfully with cinematographic, if I can say that, techniques of framing and lighting. One art critic has called the Tintin strips a succession of veritable minor masterpieces. That's how I felt about the movie, actually. Women are noticeably absent in Tintin's adventure, in, in all his adventures. Uh, today is International Women's Day. Good day, yes. good day to be talking about this. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> As befits a boy's world. The exception is the majestically obese and bejeweled opera star Bianca Castiofiori, whose shrill areas haunt Hinton and Haddock to the most remote regions of the earth, even when she is not there in person. And now back to The Economist, another interesting observation. Unlike another fictional adolescent with a media job, the American comic character Spider-Man, portrayed as a freelance photographer in civilian life, Tintin is not an outsider or a rebel against an established order. He defends monarchs against revolutionaries. His first instinct on catching a villain is to hand him over to the nearest police chief. He does not carry his own gun, though he shoots like an ace. Though slight, he has a very gentlemanly set of fighting skills. He knows how to box how to sail, how to drive racing cars, pilot planes, and ride horses. His quick wits compensate for his lack of brawn. And this is exactly, this exactly describes Tintin in Spielberg's release, wouldn't you say? Oh, yes, indeed, when, especially when he's beset upon by these huge brutes. He uses a bit of uh, a karate of some sorts, you know, taking, taking out their ankles or their knees and, and then just laying them down that way rather than actually trying to head-to-head to head to head, you know, combat. Right, and then, of course, piloting planes. We get to see him doing that. There's that oh. funny scene between him and the captain. Yeah. Now, mind you, this movie was done in 3D as well. Was it? Yeah. And so you can imagine some of the... And we didn't see the 3D version, yeah. and it was amazing on, on its own. So you can imagine what some of those scenes look like in 3D. 
But I, I, I got a kick out of the scene where they're hopping in the plane and tin, with Captain Haddock and Tintin's trying to start it up there. And he says, you know how to fly a plane? And he says, more or less. And he goes, which is it, more or less? And Tintin answers, well, I interviewed a pilot once. <laughs> <laughs> and off they go, right? Oh, that scene was just phenomenal, yes. the aircraft scene. Well, I thought every scene was amazing. You, you have to, it's, it's something you can't explain until you've seen it. Uh, you know, Hergé's original comic book art style seems to appeal to people who may generally not be into comic books as a general rule. You know, it's kind of hard to put your finger on, again, without seeing it for yourself. Um, animation that rivals reality in a lot of ways. I was interested at the opening of the show. Oh, during yes. the credits, they played... Uh, during the credits, they used the traditional art style yes. of the Tintin comic strips. And Very I thought... Clean. Yes, and I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I thought it was going to be like that, right? And then when the opening scene starts with that wonderful scene, tell us about that, Robert, because oh. you figured out something last night as we discussed it. You went online and did some research. Well, yes, actually, when I was watching it, the very opening scene shows uh, Tintin in, in a, uh, a bazaar, probably in Paris, and a, uh, a local artist is painting his portrait, as, as you might find over there. And he, the local artist says, have I painted you before? You seem familiar to me. And, and of course, Tintin says no. And, he's, and he finishes the painting, hands it to Tintin. And, of course, the painting is Hergé's Tintin. depiction of Tintin right. in the very style of the 30s. And the computer animated uh, Tintin holds it up and you see the, the two side by the each. The first scene. Just, it looks absolutely marvelous. Yes. But the painter... And this is what now, struck me. I looked at the painter, and I'm going, that has to be Hergé as an homage to him. And I looked up a picture of Hergé on the Internet, and sure enough, the painter is Hergé himself. Well, that, see, that, that even adds just that much more to the movie. And in the background, there are pictures of some of the other characters from Tintin's uh, comics as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you, know, you know, I thought another thing about the... Not only did it keep the feel and, and, and the spirit of the Tintin comic strips, uh, Spielberg... Um, you know, with regard to suspension of disbelief, you know, they, they do stretch it a few few points here with some of the airplane so. crashes and things. <laughs> but for the most part, um, the characters are very earthbound, very much like the rest of us. You know, it's not like uh, they're going to fly, you know, just magical things happen. It's not like that. It's a very, I mean, gravity does what it does. It's not a wily e. Coyote no, kind of thing. nothing like that. And, um, Except maybe with the propeller ones. But. Well, <laughs> that was a very funny scene, too. But, um, you know, it's uh, the furthest you have to suspend your disbelief, I think, is with regard to some of the action stunts. A little bit of Indiana Jones, which also happens to be Spielberg, so what, what's new oh, there, right? yes, yes. And uh, the fact that the main characters don't get too bruised or injured, you know, in some of those situations. Now that you mention it, Indi Indiana Jones, there's a, a scene in there, of course, where the propeller yes. kills the Nazi... And in this particular uh, movie, uh, Tintin is threatened by this propeller as he's unconscious right. on the uh, uh, on the cowling of the plane, inching towards the propeller. <laughs> Obviously, an homage to his work, you know Spielberg's the, work. The other um, stretched character I would think would be Tintin's dog Snowy. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah. Acts like a dog, looks like a dog, but very intelligent. Just happens to be in the right place at the right time, yes. every time, you know. Except, uh, of course, when he's doing dog things like chasing other dogs yes. or things like that. And um, Snowy is an interesting character 
in an entirely unrelated way to the story. He's not only a character in the story, but serves a literary purpose, acting as a device through which Tintin can constantly narrate what he's thinking and expressing. He sits in the library talking to the dog, and the dog's always, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of rapport that goes on, and you know he's really talking to you and the audience. It's a great, it's a great technique. Device, yes, indeed. Uh, and, and makes it a lot of fun. As to the story, well, ships, pirates, treasure, mystery, adventure... Uh, how can you go wrong? <laughs> stuff, stuff you don't see too much these days. And when I was growing up, I was uh, steep into things like the Hardy Boys, Tom Swift, uh, even the Bobsy Twins when I was younger. And, of course, the women had Nancy Drew. All the same kind of uh, boy wor- boys' world adventure, uh, heroism, um, you know, where exactly as the French were trying to get rid of, cowardice. You yes. know, get rid of that and just show people as being heroic and intelligent and competent in the world. Absolutely. It was a joy to watch this movie. And and the unexpected always happens, too. And that was true of the comic strips. That's what made them so different. Um, you know, also, the, of course, the detail to attention, and every, or the attention to detail. Um, I could not tell. I remember you, you, you told me you actually turned back. You had to check that camel. I had to stop that movie so many times, go back and, and just watch it again because there's so much going on. It's not your typical animation. No. You're, and when you're looking at a picture of a bazaar, every single character is animated, doing their own thing. It's like watching reality. Yeah. If you watch it four times, you'll see four different things Yeah. because you can look at a different part of the screen. The camera is constantly moving, too, the, 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 you know, where the, the viewer's point of view, but not in a way that makes you dizzy, but to create that three-dimensional mm-hmm. um, view of action because, of course, there is a 3D version. But the same principle applies to what you see on a traditional screen. Great comic book visual angles incorporated into this live motion style, if you want to call it that. So two thumbs up on this one? Uh, oh, absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> so. you know, the art and the characters uh, were lifted from the pages of the original Hergé collection. All the same facial features, same expressions. I recognized all of them. And... Um, you know, the characters, too, in addition to Tintin and Captain Haddock, there were the Thompson twins, after whom the musical band mm-hmm. of the same name was, was named themselves, the opera singer, and, of course, Snowy. Tintin's very loyal and intelligent, very handy to have a round dog. <laughs> um, except when he got into distractions, and that's one of the things about Tintin is those little distractions. They were an integral part of the original, part of the original comic mm-hmm. strip. And uh, where every once in a while, Hergé would suddenly depart from the plot and devote a series of panels to some sight gag or unrelated to the plot, side drama going on somewhere. And um, like Captain Haddock's occasional drinking adventures, which were always... (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, so it, it was a technique that gave the series a strange sense of realism to it, you know, because that's how life is, isn't it? Things go on around you that aren't related to your main plot, I guess. Total distractions. And so, there's an, like, as you say, there's an incredible amount of action going on on the screen at all times in a Spielberg movie. And this one, it's, in, it's impossible to keep track of all of it in a single viewing. So, as you say, definitely two thumbs up on this one. Um, the art alone is worth watching. So, check it out. It's a lot of fun. We shall return after this break. Nobody takes my ship! They've already taken it. Right, nobody takes my ship twice! We'll show them here, won't we, Tintin? All right, then, what's the plan? There is no plan. Of course there's a plan. You've always got a plan. Not this time. Sekarin has the scrolls. They'll lead him to the treasure. It could be anywhere in the world. We'll never see him again. It's over. <laughs> I thought you were an optimist. 
Well, you were wrong, weren't you? I'm a realist. Us, just another name for a quitter. You can call me what you like. Don't you get it? We failed. Failed? There are plenty of others willing to call you a failure. A fool. A loser. A hopeless souse. Don't you ever say it of yourself. You send out the wrong signal. That is what people pick up. Do you understand? You care about something, you fight for it. You hit a wall, you push through it. There's something you need to know about failure, Tinder. You can never let it defeat you. the staff at our public school you know we had a saying uh that those who can't do teach and those who can't teach teach gym and uh, of course those who couldn't do anything i think were assigned to our school welcome back to just right on chw 94.9 fm where you can give us a call at 519-661-3600 if you'd like to join in on our discussion or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. You can also find all of our archived shows at our website at justrightmedia.org. And while there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook. So from the lighthearted world of entertainment and Tintin, we're going to move to something a little more serious now for the last half of the show. I'm going to be talking about education and um, captive consent. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, first, I have to start this segment off with a little background on the EQAO. Last week, the Fraser Institute released a ranking of the schools here in Ontario based on the, the scores each school received from the Education Quality and Accountability Office, the EQAO. Now, the EQAO is an arm's-length crown agency of the government of Ontario instituted under the progressive conservative government of Mike Harris in 1996. That's important. Its mandate is to conduct province-wide tests at key points in every student's primary, junior, and secondary education and report the results to educators, parents, and the public. The questions on the EQAO tests are developed by Ontario educators and linked directly to the learning expectations of the Ontario curriculum. And the EQAO has a, an annual budget of $33 million Canadian, so don't look to it uh, going anytime soon. Mm -hmm. There's just too many vested interests in this uh, particular bureaucracy. Now, when I was a trustee on the London Board of Education, I do remember the reaction of the teachers and administrators and trustees and unions to this form of standardized testing. They were opposed to it, but not opposed on any solid educational grounds. They opposed it purely on partisan political grounds. The memory of the hatred the teacher unions had for Mike Harris years is still seared into the minds of many today. That was the time when the common pronunciation of the word harassment was changed to harassment to reflect the harassment the teachers felt they were being subjected to by the Harris government. Mike Harassment, yeah. Yes, Mike Harassment. <laughs> Every time the EQAO scores are released, we see the same teachers and administrators line up to condemn the results mainly because of the sense of effrontery they feel at having their profession assessed by the government. I mean, how dare the government assess teachers? 
and no wonder. The results, although I have to admit many failings in the validity and reliability of the testing, have always shown how poorly the public education is at achieving the results mandated by their own curriculum. And while the nature of the curriculum is a topic I'll keep for another day, suffice it to say that it's a failure in itself, a failure to teach the proper literacy and numeracy skills to enable students to graduate with the skills necessary to proceed to the next stage in their lives. The ranking of school scores is always frowned upon because it re reveals something of the education system which teachers and boards would like us to ignore. First, that areas of low social demographics or immigration do poorer than schools who have uh, children from more affluent and established families, shall we say? And second, that if these factors are actually accounted for, what's revealed is the poor teaching ability of the staff at particular schools. In London, the elementary school which scored the lowest was Sir John A. Macdonald, a school which is in a lower income area of town and has a considerable number of immigrant children. Although these same demographics can be found in many other schools in this city and in the province. And those schools scored higher than Sir John A. Macdonald. In fact, almost every school scored higher than uh, Mac, because Mac had a school, a score rather, of zero out of ten. Can't get much lower than that. It's pretty low. What I find most interesting is not that a school can perform so poorly on the EQAO tests, but that the parents of the children attending this school don't protest, but instead actually praise the teachers and the staff at the school. And here's where I get into my thesis. I believe they're suffering from a form of Stockholm Syndrome. Now let's preface that mm -hmm. a bit. From Wikipedia, in psychology, Stockholm Syndrome is an apparently paradoxical psychological phenomenon in which hostages express empathy and have positive feelings towards their captors, sometimes to the point of defending them. These feelings are generally considered irrational in light of the danger or risk endured by the victims, who essentially mistake a lack of abuse from their captors for an act of kindness. Stockholm Syndrome can be seen as a form of traumatic bonding, which does not necessarily require a hostage scenario, but which describes strong emotional ties that develop between two persons where one person intermittently harasses, beats, threatens, abuses, or intimidates the others. Now, one of the more infamous victims who exhibit, exhibited Stockholm Syndrome was Patty Hearst. I remember, I remember that. Yes. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, remember this back in the 70s. She was kidnapped by the uh, Symbionese Liberation Army in 74. After two months in captivity, she actively took part in a robbery they were orchestrating. Parents of these poorly scoring schools, in fact, most parents who have children in the public education system, a system which graduates many children who are still illiterate and incapable of functioning at the same level as, say, students who graduated in the earlier half of the last century, seem to rally around in defense of the school system whenever it feels threatened by things such as standardized testing. Why? They, like a kidnapped victim, are presented with little choice. They're forced to have their children educated in the Ontario curriculum, whether in public or private schools. They're forced to pay into the system even if they wish to send their children to another school or even home school. They're still forced to pay into the public or Catholic education systems. 
They feel bewildered at the array of the ever-increasing complexity of the curriculum, deliberately made so by the teaching profession, with the sole purpose of excluding any layman from doing what is actually a rather simple task, teaching. Left with mm -hmm. this feeling of being captured in a system of force, they, like Patty Hearst, actually support the system, even when data shows the harm that it's doing to their children. Now, here's an excerpt from one parent who had children in Sir John A. MacDonald, which aired on the Andy Udman show here in London on the radio. I'm quoting from her. I have no problem with the education my children have received at Sir John A. MacDonald. I see remarkable things at that school every day. The staff are incredible, just incredible. And I've seen a lot of teachers. I've probably seen a hundred different teachers over the last 12 years, and this group of people are a team. You can feel it when you walk into the front door of that school. The camaraderie, the compassion, the care, and the excitement for teaching. They want to see every child succeed, and whether there's one step ahead or ten steps ahead, every step ahead is progress for our students. Regardless of their background, regardless of their ability, that's what we focus on. I'm not a teacher, and I know that the foundation they received from junior kindergarten to grade 8 was exceptional. We've considered moving, not because of the school. We would find a way to get our kids back into that school if we moved out of the area. Mac is an exceptional place. Yes, Mac is an exceptional <laughs> place. <laughs> uh, this after hearing that their children's school was listed as 2,689th out of 2,695 elementary schools in the province. Yeah, success for every student, eh? <laughs> that is an exception, yeah. indeed, <laughs> but on the wrong side. Stockholm Syndrome can be the only explanation, I think, why parents praise a school system which is crippling their children's minds. But the education system is not the only area where we see the Stockholm Syndrome at work. It can be found in any area where force is used to, in effect, victimize or capture the public with no alternatives, just as with actual kidnap victims. When we're told, for example, that firefighters make over $100,000 a year in this city, we don't hesitate to praise the good work they do. Oh, oh, oh even don't, don't though... Don't get me started. Don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, I know. Even though the good work they do is done so infrequently and is usually done by unpaid volunteers in countless communities in this country. People, this, you know, they're confusing the good work with the good worker. Two different things. I think so. Right, and any, oh, yes. you can a lot of some other people could do the good work too. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what that's, that's what's demonstrated. That, yeah, that's right. And the same praise, as a matter of fact, goes to uh, policemen. Even though the police department has refused to come in under budget year after year after year. But Robert, we need the police. Oh, of course, uh -huh. that they do such great work out there. Yeah. Uh huh. Stockholm syndrome. Our healthcare system also is praised as the best in the world even though it clearly isn't, <laughs> you know, clearly isn't. We have, as a society, become a mass of kidnapped victims who have become sympathetic towards our captors, repeatedly giving them salary raises, re-electing them to Parliament, and singing their high praises of the essential work they provide us, even though we somehow know deep down that they're essentially harming us and leaving us with little or no alternatives. We either side with them or accept the fact that we're all victims held captive by force every day of our lives. I have to say, Robert, that's the first time I've ever thought about it in that way. You have an interesting perspective there. 
Just uh, a theory. You know, with, with, with <laughs> yes, um, with the um, Fraser Institute's report, you said that they were judging it based on the school system's own standards that they were not meeting, not not some other That's right. uh, international standard or anything of that nature. Am I correct in understanding that? Yeah, but it's... So, um, so, let me see where where I say that. Yes. Um. Well, well, but the point is, did you find any specifics? Like, I, I never in the whole discussion, and I heard that on the radio too. I heard all sorts of issues. I never heard reading, writing, or arithmetic, <laughs> or anything in that line discussed. And was that being measured? What was being measured? Well, they call it literacy and numeracy these days. But yes, it's literacy and numeracy, primarily those two things. Um, I, I, if memory serves, it's um, in grade three, six, nine, and ten. Uh, ten, I think, is just literacy, but the others is literacy and numeracy. So it's it's a longitudinal measurement of the progress of students based on the standard, which is the Ontario curriculum itself. Now, I think that if they did st- tests, standardized tests based on um, uh, exceptional curricula from perhaps other countries and other jurisdictions, and compared that, we would still be extremely embarrassed at the level of uh, illiteracy and innumeracy that our students here in Ontario mm-hmm. have. Understood. But just given the fact that we're comparing that to our own, our own system, and we still go out there and sing high praise of the teachers and the education system, I think well, it's just like the Stockholm Syndrome. We're captors. We're victims. Understood. Okay. I understand Scott is on the line with a comment. Go ahead, Scott. Hey, guys. Hi. Just today. Um, I think what we're seeing here um, is along the lines as the the themes that are in a lot of schools in Ontario is that even though that you fall in short and you fail to deliver the standards that are in your own curriculum, it's still not your fault. They like to pass the responsibility off to other people. It's just like if a kid falls behind on their assignment or their test, you know, it's not their fault and they're just keep... They keep giving them free passes and free passes and won't fail them. And and I just think that's what we're seeing with the parents and the teachers saying, well, you know, it's not our fault. Oh, we hear that all the time. And thanks for your comments, Scott. As a matter of fact, when I was a trustee, um, it was was commonplace for poor results to be always foisted upon the parents. Oh, you're not reading to your children at night. Or, uh, or the demographics. For, you're you're coming from a poor neighborhood. You're or uh, children of immigrants. I think know? Scott Scott's uh, observation points to when I said success for every student. That was a philosophy of the school board. That at was that the theme, time. the motto. Yes. And so, and that meant nobody failed. And nobody did. Nobody did. That was the whole point. Nobody failed. So, t- so you know, who is that helping? You know, it's certainly not, not the child. It's not anyone's fault to fail, as we just heard from Captain Haddock. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so to even look at it like that is, is, is the wrong way. We should be looking at the education factor. If we were actually educating our kids, I don't think they'd have to spend more than six years in school out of their whole, whole lifetime. After that, it's optional. I go back to the show that we did previously on this topic, and the prime role of the public education system is not education. It is indoctrination. And that takes all of the child's childhood. Mm-hmm. If you if you have a system of indoctrination and you stopped after uh, the child was ten, they'd have a chance to actually recover. <laughs> okay. Now, when we return after this break, we'll be discussing Diane Francis's suggestion of direct democracy. Back right after this. Now, what's the problem? Education. Now, what do you think I can do about it? You're the prime minister. Yes, I know. 
and I have no direct control over education as such. I mean, I don't control the curriculum, I don't control the exams, I don't control the choice of head teachers, nothing. But the voters are holding you responsible for everything that's going wrong. You do have influence. And I'm absolutely fed up with it. When I became Prime Minister, I thought I was going to have power. What have I got? I've got influence, that's all. I've got no power over the police, the rates, EEC directives, the European courts, our courts, the judges, NATO. What have I got the power to do? I have the power to lose us the next election. <laughs> if you don't do something about education. The voters want something done about low academic attainment, the non-competitive ethos, sex education. I'm not against sex education. Well, I'm not against children being taught the facts of life in the classroom, but not homosexual technique. No <laughs> heterosexual technique come to that. Well, where should they learn it then? Behind the bike sheds, like we do. <laughs> here with Liberal candidate Jim Walcott. The lines are open. Go ahead. If you'd like to hear Jim Walcott's views, uh, give us a call. The lines are open. Go ahead. Um, find out what's on Jim Walcott's mind. This is the show to do it. Jim uh, is sitting here waiting to, to discuss uh, what his views on, uh, on the political situation is today. Give us a call. Go ahead, caller. Listen, you guys, you guys, we've got a problem in this campaign, okay? Right. You know what our problem is? What? We're losing. We're dead here, okay? okay. If we don't come up with something, if we don't, you know, I think we've got to find out what it is that we just, as a human being, what we love in this guy, aside from his image, mm -hmm. right, aside from the hair and aside from the, you know, the broadcast image, what, what we really love about this guy, the person, and we capitalize on that. <laughs> that was from the newsroom. Big problem politically. We're losing. <laughs> I would say that is a problem. Diane Francis in the National Post just about three weeks ago, February 18th. We need a dose of direct democracy, she writes, in response to Ontario's Drummond report, which told us what we already knew about the dismal state of the, you know, the province's fiscal house. I think Diane Francis offered the worst of all possible solutions to curb government overspending, direct democracy. But in the process, she did describe the main problem very clearly. She argues thusly, to quote her essential points, quote, The reality is that politicians overspend because of the flaw in our political system. The flaw is not democracy, as some would argue. The flaw is representative democracy, or a version of democracy based on the principle of electing individuals to represent, to represent the group. The alternative is direct democracy, where the group votes on important issues and has the, elect, the elected on a very short leash. This is, to me, very reminiscent of the Taxpayer Protection Act, which Harris put in and which has never really been effective at all. Now, um, this is the only exit from the vicious cycle that has plagued public finances everywhere, she argues. Politicians buy our votes through overspending. And then at this point in the essay, Francis gives the idea of zero tax increase budgeting, two thumbs up. I don't disagree there, but this is not direct democracy, but simply a limit on government spending and on taxation. And, of course, in the long run, subject to the same weaknesses as representative democracy. Then writes Francis, quote, another way is to elect fiscally responsible politicians. But they are eventually replaced by a spendthrift regime eager to use up the improved credit rating that they inherited. <laughs> and that's very true. It is. 
And she says, this is precisely what happened in Ontario after the Liberals replaced the Conservatives, end quote. Now here, I think that's a bit misguided, especially given the theme of the essay. It is true that McGuinty's Liberals spent more than the previous PC government, but there's no PC government that isn't equally as guilty, and usually more so than the Liberals and NDP who often preceded them. And remember, that's the party that gave us the income tax, banned private health care, and still today would never dare to even whisper what is necessary to really cut on provincial expenses. And then writes Francis, representative, de representative de democracy doesn't work and budget limits are the only fix. So are tax and spending limits. Unfortunately, both measures require approval by the same spendthrifts who made them necessary. So in the absence of introducing direct democracy into the budget process, little will change. Then Francis points out how unions are a major component of the problem and cites the Drummond Report for, quote, pointing out that any political party that panders to unions has a conflict of interest and cannot stop overspending, end quote. Gee, there's a quote that stands on its own, eh, Robert? Mm -hmm, indeed. And also citing the Drummond Report, she notes that half the Ontario budget goes to union public sector employees, while by 2018, Ontario's debt will be higher than Ottawa's or $411 billion. And she concludes... I think it'll move to Greece. Yeah. <laughs> this means the only remedy will come from capital markets, as Greece has learned. Oh. <laughs> Were you reading my notes? No, I didn't. <laughs> the party will end, and the unemployed union workers will fill the streets. End quote. A very depressing, yet relatively accurate picture. Unfortunately, the suggested solution of direct democracy is no more a solution than the others suggested. The problem's far deeper than that. It is philosophical. And when the voting public is socialist, so too are its governments, and nothing in the world's going to change that. Not in that, in that sense, especially if you let them vote directly. I would hope that something in the world would change. <laughs> I don't hear any of the public clamoring to get rid of socialized health care or state-run education systems, because until that happens, there's no hope for controlling deficits and debts. It's as simple as that. End of story, period. We could go home now. Okay. You know, that's, that's it. But Francis is correct to suggest that the only remedy will come from capital markets, but what of capitalism? And what of democracy? Francis has correctly described our current form of democracy as being, quote, based on the principle of electing individuals to represent the group. Precisely the problem. Groups don't have rights. Groups don't have interests. Only individuals do which is why we should be electing politicians who commit themselves to the task of representing individual rights, which means ensuring that we live in a society in which consent is the ruling social principle. From where we are now, this would require a major rethink of government. Another obvious implication of Francis's description of Ontario's problem is the reality that any hope of stemming bankruptcy will not originate with any of the parties sitting in the legislature. She's pretty much admitting that, isn't she? No hope. There's literally no hope. Even given her fantasy belief that progressive conservatives may stem spending, they never do. What they really do is occasionally reduce the rate of increase in government spending. That's all you ever see. And supposing even if they did, she still thinks it won't make any difference anyway because throughout the political cycle, the NDP or liberals will just turn the tap on again when they get in. Right? So, you know, same with her opinion about electing fiscally responsible politicians. Some spendthrift will just get into office later. So there's simply no hope, according to her, except direct democracy. And I'm thinking, direct democracy, are you kidding? What makes voters any different from politicians? 
Voters who receive tax dollars outnumber voters who are taxpayers. And even if that were reversed, it still wouldn't guarantee that taxpayers, as taxpayers, would vote for themselves. Strangely enough, most taxpayers actually believe they get more from government than they have to pay in. Right? <laughs> Perpetual motion y- yes, machine. Yes, you see that all the time. And so when you take all those situations into account, you realize you know, the majority of voters are not currently shopping for what Diane Francis is preaching. They just aren't. And that's, you know, in any given municipality, for example, voters outnumber actual uh, property taxpayers by a long shot. Take me, for example. I'm allowed to vote municipally, but I shouldn't be, Robert. I live, I, I rent, right? You pay no property taxes? Right. My, no, I don't. People will say, um, oh, yes, you do. No, no. My voting violates, violates the principle of no taxation without representation. I don't pay property taxes. My landlord does, whether I'm in the unit and whether it's occupied or whether it's empty. And if those taxes aren't paid, no city hall is going to come after me. They're going to be coming after the landlord. And even if I pay my rent and he doesn't, then the property taxes still aren't paid. So that's just the cost of his doing business that I cover in my rent, just like his cost of paying employees, keeping that up. So anyway, it's just some thoughts on why I don't think that's going to be the answer. You the, do chant have to. Of, the chant of the mob, Diane Francis, is gimme, gimme, gimme. Always. It won't work. And uh, that's the last thing you want. What you want is principled people and politics. And however long it takes, that's the only thing that's going to do the trick. And that's it for this week. We'll return next week when we do continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, act right, do right, stay right. And be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be <laughs> Have you noticed that's the new status symbol of rich people? Midgets <laughs> I'm serious No entourage is complete now Unless you have a midget <laughs> And you know what? That's good for midgets Seriously, because historically Those people have not gotten good jobs even when they book a movie, they never get to be the lead, never get to be the hero. They always got to play like a troll or a fairy, running out from under a bridge, biting on somebody's leg. 